So just another response to your question, Chad, is that also the immeasurables um, really nourish well-being and happiness in us, which is really important for practice and for being alive. So um, even if people don't always feel that immediate effect, So that's actually what I'd also like to speak about this afternoon, is about happiness. And um, just, just saying that and reflecting a little bit just before, um, during the meditation now, kind of um, like on some level, if we probably had the time to have a conversation with anybody in the world and really kind of get to what they actually want in life, it would probably boil down to that, you know, that we want to be happy. We might feel a little embarrassed to say that. It might not, you know, necessarily feel um, profound enough or something. But, of course, happiness can also have many meanings. And so, yeah, very much the sense that it's a universal thing that we all wish for, um, that we all want. Um, And at the same time, it's something we don't really understand very well. And we don't actually know often how to get it. You know, it's like, I I want to be happy, but but how do I actually get happiness or how do I actually make myself happy? And what does that actually mean? You know, does, it, does happiness always mean the same thing for, for all of us or for each of us um, in different situations? Does it always mean the same And so... This kind of universal quality that is also uh, a bit of a universal mystery, we can say universal aspiration. That's also a bit of a of a universal mystery. What what is it actually, and how do we how do we get it? And in in Dharma teachings, it's actually mentioned quite a lot. Happiness, you know, happiness and. You know, actually, like in the English language, a lot of different things around having happiness, gladness, contentment, joy, you know, different um, aspects of the sense of, of well-being. And there's one, I, I recently came across um, a Buddhist saying, I actually don't even know where it's from. I just read that it's a Buddhist saying. And... Uh, it says um, that happiness, which in Pali is sukha, is that which can be born with ease. It's that which can be born with ease. And suffering, dukkha, which is the opposite of sukha, <laughs> the opposite of happiness, is that which cannot be born with ease. And I think I, I kind of, it really hit me. It's, it's an interesting understanding or an interesting definition 
happiness, that which can be born with ease. It's interesting because it's, it, it immediately takes happiness from being a kind of thing, you know, to, to something that we have a relationship to. So it's something that we can be at ease with. It can be our, you know, our inner response to something external or internal. It's something that we can actually be with ease, um, which is, you know, quite different to an understanding of, you know, that makes me really happy. <laughs> it's not necessarily something like that. It's just that sense of being at ease with, as opposed to something that cannot be born with ease. Yeah, so it's very much points to this um, relational aspect of happiness. So very simple, direct, and unusual, I, I thought definition and Dharma teachings speak a lot about um, kind of um, what is called uh, false happiness you know the way the ways that we normally try to get happiness or where we look for happiness um, which is often through sense pleasures you know the baddies of the Dharma world <laughs> sense pleasures you know, we look for, we naturally look for happiness. That's, that's how we're kind of conditioned to, to find it, through, through the pleasure of the senses. And really important to remember that in, in, um, in Dharma language, in the Buddhist understanding, the mind is a sense also. So, you know, it includes thinking, fantasizing, you know, all that, everything that happens in the mind as well. Is a, is a sense object and the mind is a sense so the pleasure we also get from that so that kind of um, false happiness false understanding of, of really seeking happiness looking for happiness in the gratification of, of, of the sense senses in you know desire which is a lot of the time focused out there, you know, to get things or to get people or to get internally experiences also or forms of desire. And one thing that's very interesting when we start looking at this, you know, object of, object, objectification Sometimes you can tell English is a second language for me. <laughs> so, you know, when we think happiness is dependent on that which is outside of me and I need to get it, that movement of desire. And there's several interesting things that we can see in that. One is that is very much rooted in separation. You know, me and that, or me and they, or him or her, whatever it is separation which when we really experience that experience of separation we we see that that is not a happy state yeah when there's that gap and the other interesting thing is i mean we start um really um looking at that movement of desire and the gratification of desire we see that actually it's endless you know, it's endless. 
And I don't know if you, um, if anyone had that experience during the um, the, the lunchtime, um, <laughs> but one really interesting practice can be to to watch what happens. Really observe closely. Observe one mouthful of food. You know how you know we may be really hungry or you know really desiring whatever that is. You know maybe it's one of those wonderful cakes. You can do this in the next break or biscuits that are out there. You know we really feel that pull. Ah, you know it's going to make me happy. And then you know we take a bite, and if we actually watch the experience, the pleasantness actually usually lasts only about one or two chews. You know, and, and you know we're good boys and girls, and we know we need to chew more than once or twice before we swallow. If you continue chewing and you watch the experience, it goes neutral and it becomes unpleasant at some point because there's no flavors left, and all you've got is you know this gooey mush in your mouth that you still need to chew before you swallow. But by that point, our mind is usually focused on something else, you know. Very often the next bite, you know, or, you know, it can be something, you know, completely different. And it, it, it really is, um, it's fascinating and really worth looking. And they've actually recently done, um, this is another study, I don't know why I'm bombarding you with these today. Um, they, they did a study in, in good old the US of A um, where they, they found there's a way of measuring people's um, kind of excitement, um, by putting some sensors on the skin. I can't remember what they measure. So they put these things on, on a bunch of people and they send them out into you know, the um, temple of, of uh, our modern societies, the shopping mall. And then people went around you know, shopping. And what they found was that the measuring, you know, the, the, the response on the skin, the peak of the joy, the peak of the enjoyment of the experience of shopping was at the moment when people were standing um, at the cashiers and they were handing over their money or their credit card. That was the peak enjoyment. So they knew they were going to get, they were getting what they had, what they were desiring, but they hadn't gotten it yet. And actually the experience starts going downhill from when they're handed <laughs> the object. I mean, this is unbelievable. You know, the Buddha was saying this 2,600 years ago without any senses. But this is, you know, and we can see it in our own experience. It's the wanting. It's the wanting that's really pulling us, you know. It's not in the object. You know, whatever it was, we desire it. And then it's, it's the moment before. We know we've got it, but we haven't gotten it yet. And then that's the peak moment of joy it's really really fascinating and so what happens is when we're not aware of this when we're not paying attention when we're not um, watching this carefully is that desire just moves from thing to thing and so there's never actually much happiness happening for very long because it's focused on something external and even when we get it it quickly shifts to something else Another interesting thing um, that sometimes um, in very quiet moments of meditation we can see in regard to this is that it's actually the, the happiness comes um, from the relief when the desire subsides. So we think it's, oh, we got that, you know, oh, finally a cup of tea, you know. I've been wanting a cup of tea for an hour and a half. And it, 
you know, finally a cup of tea, but the, the, the experience of contentment and happiness is not the cup of tea, but it's actually the relief that the desire is finally relaxing because I have the cup of tea. So all things that we can see sometimes. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm probably going off on a tangent here, but of course the way our modern society is um, function, functions is to actually keep us unhappy. You know, if, if we were encouraged to be happy with what we had, our economies would collapse. You know, it's built on this natural tendency that we have of want it, get it, want it, get it, want it, get it. If we stop wanting and were actually satisfied, who would go shopping, <laughs> you know? Who would go shopping? The economy would actually collapse, and it's a very sad state of affairs, you know, very, very sad. It is a tangent, but I had to say it. So it's interesting to see this, you know, this, this sense of... Um, dissatisfaction in us which breeds more dissatisfaction you know breeds more dissatisfaction for as long as we're looking for the satisfaction we're looking for the happiness in in things that cannot actually bring us happiness and the buddha um, himself in his journey towards um awakening uh, one of his great moments of realization was his realization of of you know i'm looking for happiness in things that are impermanent and things that change. And so actually I want to start looking for happiness. I want to find that which doesn't change, which doesn't die, which doesn't fall apart, which doesn't age. That was one of the, of, of the crucial moments on his path. <coughs> so really important to kind of change the focus and see if we can actually look for a happiness that isn't reliant on something external, and actually isn't relying on something, yeah? It's actually a mind state or a state of mind that is a relationship to, yeah? It's a relationship to. And so this kind of shift in focus has to start somewhere and you know the best place to start is always where we are you know right here right now with you know whichever the whatever moment there is with our body our mind our experience as it is right now to really look at our experience and to question You know, how do, I, how do I live my life? To really look with, with courage and with honesty. How am I living my life? You know, how much of my happiness is dependent on external conditions? How much of my happiness is dependent on external conditions? On material possessions? And does it work? You know, it's really important, you know, like the Buddha said it again and again, don't just believe what I'm saying because I'm saying it. Check, does it work? You know, what makes me happy? 
What is it that makes me happy? And can I align my life with what makes me happy and actually let go of the things that I think make me happy, but when I look at them closely, see that they don't. I see that they don't. And so seeing happiness as a relationship, happiness as a relationship to our mind state, a relationship towards that which arises in our lives. And can we find ways of actually resting with ease, even when life moves, even with the ups and downs, the ebbs and flows, the uncertainty, the changeability, and the scariness you know, of being a human being. And it's not easy. It's not easy for us. And so a big part of this inquiry is to really reflect what genuinely brings me happiness or what brings me genuine happiness. And of course, that happiness too will, you know, fluctuate. It's not about living life in a constant, permanent state of one thing rather than the other, but that sense of ease, that sense of acceptance. And so when I was, for some reason recently, a few months ago, I was really interested to to kind of read about this, you know, what actually makes people happy. And um, together with my my fascination of the parallels between Dharma teachings and um, contemporary psychological research, it was interesting to see there's quite a few areas that lap over, have an overlap of what actually makes human beings happy. And uh, it probably won't, won't surprise you, most of the things I'm going to say, but it's just worth, um, worth highlighting them. So the first one is generosity. That was number one on the list. And, you know, they've done a lot of research, research that shows that... Um, that people who spend money, this was research specifically about the generosity in the form of money, people who spend money on others are actually happier than people who spend none or less. I'm not sure how they measured this, but it's interesting. And of course, you know, we know that in, in Dharma teachings, you know, dana is, or generosity is the foundation of, of the practice. It's, it's the foundation. It's what the Buddha usually spoke of first when he was giving teachings. And of course, there's not ju- there's generosity that isn't just limited to um, financial or material support. There's the generosity of giving time, of giving respect, of showing kindness, um, many, many aspects to it. In the Dharma, Dharma teachings, of course, giving teachings is a, is a, a 
sign of, of generosity, exposing others to dharma. You know, there's many, many things. And I think yesterday I, I mentioned this at the end of the day, um, the quote that the Buddha spoke about, about generosity, and he says, this is the exact quote, he says, which are the three factors of, of happiness for the, um, for the one who is practicing generosity? So before giving, there is gladness. While giving, his or her mind is bright and clear. There's quality of gladness. And after giving, there is gratification. There is a sense of satisfaction, all forms of, of happiness. Another way of... Um, prioritizing, nourishing happiness in our lives is um, savoring everyday moments. We kind of did a little bit of that practice, so I was encouraging you to do a little bit of that practice during the lunch break. Savoring kind of everyday moments or just simple things. So they did a, this is a quote from a study Participants who took time to savor ordinary events that they normally hurried through or to think back on pleasant moments from their day showed significant increase in happiness and reduction in depression. So again, things like just very, very simple things like brushing your teeth, you know, enjoying that. And of course, that's what we do very much in mindfulness practice. You know, we actually make contact with our direct experience. And we can really pay attention to things like, you know, walking meditation, eating, simple things that can really bring that sense of presence and attentiveness and joy. Often just being in the present moment, you know, just being in the present moment, letting go of that movement of mind into the future or into the past, which is again a movement of the sense desire of the mind. And this is a quote from the suttas describing the, the Buddha's um, students. It says, They sorrow not for what is past. They have no longing for the future. The present is sufficient for them. Hence it is they appear so radiant. Hence it is they appear so radiant. Usually on meditation retreats, everyone looks very glum. <laughs> But if you wait, if you, if you kind of hang, out, hang, hang around long enough until the end, that's when the radiance comes through. But it's, it's interesting. I, I like that quote here. Hence they appear so radiant. So the third thing that can really support happiness um, in us, the third area, is um, becoming more familiar with, with our comparing mind and loosening its hold, a tough one, a difficult one. Uh, the Buddha spoke about this in, in Pali, it's called mana, it's, it's called the conceit of self, this very, very innate tendency in, um, in human beings to be constantly finding our place through comparison, evaluating where we are, um, through saying, okay, am I better than 
am I worse than or I'm the same as? So it's really, with mana, it's all three. Also the same as, which we normally think is not a big deal. But it's that needing to, to know where I am through comparing myself to somebody else. Um, and this is actually, has been spoken about, is one of the strongest human tendencies. And bad news is, it stays right until the end. <laughs> one of the last things to go before awakening. Um, you know, good news is, it does go. And if we were mentioning humor before lunch, humor can really help with this. Really, really help. Um, there's a story from um, Cassie McGee, uh, who I know many people here are familiar with her. Like she, she told me a story that, um, about something that happened to her many years ago on retreat. Many, many years ago. Yeah, many, many years ago. Um, that she realized at some point through the retreat that she would come into the hall and sit down and start comparing people's haircuts. Um, really wanting to get to the conclusion every time that she had the best haircut. <laughs> but just that comparison, you know, and when we're bored, this happens, we, it happens more. But we also see it on retreat. So it's a very natural tendency of mind. Um, and actually opening to it, again, honesty and courage. You know, this is going on. Honesty and courage. Let's look at it. It's painful. It's painful. So let's bring in the humor. Let's bring in the lightness. Let's remember that this is part of the human condition. You know, it's not just mine. This can really help. It's not just mine. It's the human condition. And lightening up around it. And when there's moments when we can be free of that, then we do often experience a lot of happiness and joy there. So another thing that can really support happiness for us is, is meaning. Having a sense of meaning in our lives. And, you know, that can be, um, can take very different forms for different people. And so to really be open around that and creative around that, you know, it can be spending time in your garden, you know, and growing things that gives a sense of meaning. It can be being a parent that gives a sense of meaning. Um, it can be your profession that gives a sense of meaning. Um, it can be your practice. It can be your voluntary work. You know, there's lots of things that can give meaning, but to, to actually prioritize that, that sense of meaning, is really something fundamental. We have a need for that as human beings, and that needs to be respected. Which, of course, in the you know, Buddhist context, the meaning would be to practice. <laughs> and to uh, really um, cultivate compassion, wisdom. Have enthusiasm for the Dharma. And with that um, sense of meaning, also things like having initiative and creativity in our lives can really support, root us in, in well-being and in happiness. And... Um, this is, there's an interesting piece of research that showed that even, you know, people in, their, in the job that they've done for many, maybe decades, you know, if they could still enliven to have a sense of creativity initiative, help others, um, there was enough space to offer input into what was happening, they would be much happier 
in their work than, than people who couldn't do that. Friendship and close relationships. Friendship and close relationships, really, really um, supportive for, for happiness for us. And I think also a very, very famous um, quote from the Buddha um, when he was asked by Ananda, his attendant and um, close student, um, he had heard him speak about, the, about spiritual friendship, about sangha, about community, and, and he, he came back to check with him and he said, is it true that sangha, community of like-minded people, and spiritual friends, is half of the spiritual life? And the Buddha said, no, Ananda, that is not so. It is not half of the spiritual life. It is the whole of the spiritual life. So that real important of, of deep, supportive, meaningful friendship, um, which again, you know, doesn't need to be limited to human beings. You know, we can have that with animals, we can have that with nature. That sense of, of connection and support and meaning. So these two are connected. One is um, what we've been, we've been touching on today, um, looking on the bright side or appreciating what is good when it's here, even within very, very difficult times, even within very difficult times, appreciating what, is, um, what brings support, what brings joy, what brings um, happiness to us. And again, just from some contemporary research, a conclusion, people who are more happy tend to see possibilities, opportunities, and success. When they think of the future, they're optimistic. And when they review the past, they tend to savor the high points. It's interesting that that actually, you know, tendency of mind that goes together with happiness. And as I was saying um, earlier today, that is something we can actually cultivate. So we can, even if that's not the way our minds work, we can, we can support them to be that way. And they're not talking about a false sense of positivity, so it's not kind of whitewashing experience. Again, I know I've said it, but it's really important. It's not about whitewashing experience or you know, painting everything pink. Um, it's really about just seeing the positive in what is here. And that's definitely something that we, we're encouraged to do in, in Dharma practice through metta practice, medita practice, um, attentiveness to things like right action and right speech. You know, a lot of guide, guidelines of really seeing the positive and nourishing the positive in us. And there's very um, strong examples of this, uh, both in the texts and, and in contemporary times, um, of how far this can go, you know, of how far this can go. Um, I can say from my own experience with the, the kind of ongoing deepening of meta practice, um, I re- recently realized that um, I found myself in a, in, um, entangled again in an old dynamic with a couple of people who seem to be a 
permanent fixture in my life. Um, and all dynamic, which is difficult, a difficult dynamic with a lot of disharmony and a lot of difficulty. And I found that um, within this difficulty, I could send metta to them um, in a very kind of immediate, natural and simple way. It didn't change the dynamic, but it really changed my own sense of, of well-being. This was really interesting. Um, really, really affected my own sense of well-being. I would do the metta, I would send metta to them, and I would actually feel how that was nourishing me and increasing my own sense of um, resources and happiness. So very, very interesting. Um, in the texts, you know, there's these passages like this one, which I'm going to read, where people are, you know, the Buddha's encouraging monks even if bandits were to carve you up savagely, limb by limb, listen carefully. Even if bandits were to carve you up savagely, limb by limb, with a two-handled saw, two-handled, it's very graphic, he amongst you who let his heart get angered, even at that, would not be doing my bidding. Even then you should train yourselves. Our minds will be unaffected and we will say no evil words. We will remain sympathetic with a mind of goodwill and with no inner hatred. We will keep pervading these people with an awareness imbued with goodwill. And beginning with them, we will keep pervading the all-encompassing world with an awareness imbued with goodwill. Abundant, expansive, immeasurable, free from hostility, free from ill will. That's how you should train yourself. <laughs> so go... Go and, look, go and look for some bandits with two-handed swords and train yourself. But it's, it's kind of very graphic, very extreme, but it, it actually kind of is, is doing that to give us a sense of what's possible for us. And I'm sure some of you have come across stories of, you know, Tibetan practitioners. Um, there's one, um, one famous well, maybe not so famous, one story about um, a group of nuns. I think Jack Cornfield tells this. Um, a group of Tibetan nuns that are all spend significant amounts of time in, in Chinese prisons, um, you know, being treated very harshly, including, including um, torture. And um, they came to a visit in the U.S. And someone arranged for them to meet with um, American prisoners who were practicing Dharma. And so there was a meeting of these um, prisoners, I think they were men, with this group of, of, of Tibetan nuns. And they were sharing stories, sharing stories about their experiences, and they were talking about fear. And the nuns were saying, um, were sharing that their greatest fear while in prison undergoing all of this, their greatest fear was that they would lose their compassion for their Chinese prison guards. That was their greatest fear. They would lose their compassion. And apparently um, the, the, the men that were listening, just many of them just burst into tears and were saying that's, the, that's kind of the, the most powerful, the, these are the bravest people we've ever met, you know, because that was, their, that was their sense, that was their reaction to, to what was happening to them. The fear wasn't about what was going to happen to me. It was that I would lose the compassion. I would lose the care for, for the other. And so very, very interesting, you know, how far that, that can go.
not just in the, in the Buddha's examples. And so I think I've touched on this already with a kind of savoring of, of everyday things, but really um, emphasizing, yeah, gratitude again and positivity. And the Buddha called gratitude the highest protection against unhappiness. Interesting, isn't it? The highest protection against unhappiness. Yeah. And then, I've also touched on this already, but being in nature, being outdoors, and some form of, of exercise, some form of movement in the body, really, really supports sense of well-being, supports a, a deep happiness in us. And there's a nice description from the Buddha um, describing the benefits of, of walking meditation, which he called walking up and down. And I just want to read this because it's, I like these quotes. He says, monks and nuns, we'll pretend that he said monks and nuns, monks and nuns, there are these five benefits of walking up and down. What five? One is fit for long journeys. <laughs> One is fit for effort. One has little disease. One has little disease. That which is eaten, drunk, chewed, tasted, eaten, drunk, chewed, and tasted, goes through, you, through proper digestion. It's an advantage of walking up and down. And the composure and well-being that is attained by walking up and down is long-lasting. Composure, which is another word that the Buddha used for happiness, and well-being that is attained through walking up and down is long-lasting. So very, very beautiful, you know. Funny and beautiful. Just that sense of what that benefit that we all know, you know, from actually being outdoors, being in nature, and exercising the body, exercising the body. So even in a period of human history where um, people were naturally much more active physically, there was still an emphasis on this. So a deep encouragement yeah, to go back to a point I made early on, to really reflect on our lives. Where do we look? Where are we looking for happiness? And is that, does that actually provide it? What in our lives actually gives us happiness? And how can we nourish? How can we nourish what makes us happy, truly happy? It's a question to, to investigate, to look at. So, with that, keeping that question present in us, uh, we'll take some time to have some walking meditation, um, or some time outdoors at least. Highly recommend to just feel what happens to the being in the body 
when we're out in the environment and take time to move, to look at the sky, to feel the sun, um, to look at at least one plant, and to also stay connected to yourself, to the body, to, to see what happens. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.